This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Glenda Geek in Ocala, Florida. And I'm Jamie Jennings, and I'm in a very stormy Norman, Oklahoma right now. Oh, my God. You're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for June 8th, episode 2949. Good morning, horse people. It's Wednesday morning. That means Jamie and Glenn are back to talk horses with all of you. Well, let's be honest. Jamie talks horses. Glenn is just here to hassle Jamie. Enjoy the show. Well, you know what this weekend is, don't you, Jamie? Uh, I don't know. It's the, the Lord to help us. Uh, how do you get there? <laughs> it's, it's Belmont that weekend this weekend. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, Rich Strike did his workout yesterday at Belmont, and they decided to shorten it to a mile and a quarter. He usually does a mile and a half or longer in his workouts. And apparently he didn't like it. He didn't like oh, it at all. Man. And when he got done, he bucked and reared all the way to the barn. Oh my God! <laughs> it's apparently as cl- a former exercise rider <laughs> who would ride them back to the barn. That sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> well, his uh, trainer Eric Reed said, "I didn't gallop him hard enough because he came off the track rearing up." Uh, he says, "I usually do a mile and a half or further. I'll have to do a little more with him tomorrow. We're trying not to push him too hard, but like, but it's like I always say, he lets you know when he wants to do more." Oh my gosh. I think he'll be a lot closer to the pace than anyone imagines. He's gotten smarter and more aggressive. I could oh. be wrong because he'll do whatever he wants. So it sounds Listen, like how it many people, uh, those like pony riders, are like, not it? <laughs> not it. Not do you it. think the guy who draws the short straw is going to be wearing a suit of armor, like a medieval I suit mean, of armor? <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. You know, this is the perfect example of a horse kind of going to the right person. People talk about, oh, he was sold so cheap and a claiming race you know why they couldn't <laughs> handle him they were like, a nightmare. Get this horse out of my you know monty actually talked about the belmont talked about the derby on one of debbie's shows on horsemanship radio and he actually said that he was like you know there's a reason these people sold him because they probably you know he was doing this to them and they were like well just put him in the claiming race and somebody claimed him and these people have figured out how to well, sort of. Sort of manage him. <laughs> Eric's but like to get him to win. You know, a lot of horses. You tell them what they're supposed to do and point them in the direction. I think that Rich Strike just lets you know what he's going to do, and you just play along or not. Yeah, you're just you're SOL if you don't do what he wants to do. He drew post four, by the way, and there's only eight Good horses, one. so his odds are seven to two right now, which is a little different than ninety to one. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> So he, he, I think he has a shot. I mean, he's only eight horses, so that helps. Uh, but yeah, so he doesn't think he's going to start off in the back this time. He thinks that uh, he'll he'll keep up with the pace. He doesn't think the pace is going to be that great anyway. So mm. should be interesting this weekend. This I just want to watch it for the shenanigans. That's what yeah, I, exactly. I think that's what everybody, the horse people, want to do is <laughs> is watch it to see what happens. Like I don't know. Can we please co- listen? Who's the jockey? I want you to pay attention. I want you to, when you are riding him and you are being ponied at the before and after the race, to use your bloody outside rein. Please, <laughs> if you shorten your outside rein, he can't as easily 
dip to the left to bite the pony horse. Can we please do that? Or you know what? For fun, don't. (laughs) (laughs) On today's show, imagine riding across the United States before cell phones, just you, your dog, and your horse. Well, Melissa's joining us today, and she's going to talk about her adventure and the book she wrote called Distant Skies, An American Journey on Horseback. And I know you guys are all going to be shocked, but I actually read this one. So that's amazing. Yeah, it was a really good book. Plus, uh, my, I'm going to do a horses in history, and I'm going to focus on the English saddle. I've done the beginning of saddles, I've done western, and now I'm going to do the English saddle today. Plus, in our daily dose equine health segment, we have Doctor Lock. Is it Locker? Yes, Latcher. Latcher. Uh, she's been on before, and she's going to be explaining the five panel testing for quarter horses. So all now, of that's coming up on today's show. Let's be honest here, uh, because I don't want to try to pretend I I didn't get to do the interview with Glenn riding across the USA. And I also didn't get to participate in the horses in history because we are currently an hour behind schedule because of the massive lightning and thunder and hail that has been happening here. Uh, Norman, I was able to get all the horses in they're all tucked in their stalls. And I mean, I'm like, came up drenched again, you know, like all that. But anyway, that well, she, is... you, tr- you tried to call me earlier when we were supposed to start and you said, oh, I think it's quieted down a little. And then I heard this boom, boom. through the microphone, which these mics are really dead. It has to be loud to hear anything. And and, and I said, oh, that doesn't sound good. And she's like, we're going to call back later. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, my house is shaking. My house is shaking. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, if uh, I'm sorry for those of you who aren't getting rain in the United States because we're getting yeah, we, we Yeah, we're pretty dry here. You could send some over. <laughs> Six inches an hour, they're saying. Oh but right now, God. it is. we're kind of in the middle of, of the... It's calmed down for a minute, so we'll, we'll see. But yeah, all of Norman is flooded. It's a big mess. Well, you know, that leads perfectly into the next segment. <laughs> oh, boy. So what I thought we would do in the month of June, there's so much going on in the world. You know, if it isn't weather, it's wars and everything else, gas prices and everything. I thought, why don't we start something with our listeners, with our auditors, on the days you and I are on, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And let's start the show with something we're thankful for. And I also posted in the auditor room, and there must have been 100 people posted today, and they're very excited about it. So we'll do we'll do a post like that. I'll do a post like that every morning that Jamie and I do a show so that you can get a chance to say what you're thankful for and read about others. And hopefully that, uh, you know, breeds a happier day for everybody. So I am going to start today. We'll do ours on the air. So I'll start to give you a minute to think because I hadn't have a chance to warn her about this. Um, I'm thankful because I got my results yesterday from the cancer doctor. Uh, I talked about that a little bit on Monday, and I'm happy to report that they didn't find anything. So that's good. That means no cancer. We still don't know why I'm getting blood clots, but uh, th- I was just happy they didn't see any cancer on the CT oh, scans. such a relief. Oh, I my know. gosh. That was one blood test to come back yet, but basically they didn't see tumors and any of that. So I'm very thrilled that it was all good news there, uh, and I'm, I'll take the wins when I can get them. So that was a big, big, big relief. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, boss. That is just amazing. You texted me that yesterday. I was like, made my day. Well, good, good. Well, So what's your thankful for today? Um, let's see. I'm thankful if, if you're going immediate. So because we were going to do the show and because I had the horses and we knew there was some weather coming in, my father-in-law came over and picked up Lucas because Lucas is currently in baseball camp and he took him to the baseball camp and arrived and there's a lot of indoor stuff that they can do. So 
I didn't dodgeball think like we used to do in high school. They play the, dodgeball, <laughs> like baseball, like, like hitting batting oh, okay. cages, all that kind of stuff. And so they get there, and apparently Square there's dancing. like nobody there. Oh, and my father-in-law texts me, and he's like, uh, "There's nobody here." And I was like, "Oh my god!" So I call the camp, and they're like, mm-hmm, "Didn't you check our Instagram post? We said it was delayed." Oh, because like, everybody checks Instagram. <laughs> I'm not 15 years old with an Insta account, okay? So, no, I didn't see that. And I feel like y'all should probably reach out when things... So, the 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 weather's... My father-in-law is like, oh, my God, it is coming down. And so, for the next probably 40 minutes, I just stared down my driveway because they had to drive home and hail and all that. And so, I, I saw the truck pull in and... Uh, I mean, I don't think I've ever been more thankful to see see an in-law drive up the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> but they made it, and they have the kid. Now, we did have an awesome night last night. We got to go to a concert. I got oh, to take Lucas to a concert. We're going to talk about that in the post-show for all of yeah, this. And I'm going to get true. Lucas on, because I want to hear about it. Yes, Lucas is going to come on and talk about it. But So there's a lot to be thankful for. But in the immediate vicinity of my existence, it is I'm thankful that they made it home safe because I was just a mess. I'm watching the news and they're like, nobody drive around. You're going to die. <laughs> and it's like, oh, good. My father-in-law, who's 70-something, is driving with my child through all of this where they're like, turn around, don't drown. <laughs> Big adventure. <laughs> oh, so I'm thankful they're home. And so Auditor Lisa had when you chose one. Yeah, I'm going to choose one out of the batch. I, there was like a hundred, but I'm going to choose one out of the batch just to highlight. I'm going to use first names so we don't, so we don't uh, have anybody getting embarrassed. But Auditor Lisa said, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be a mother after six years of trying and still have time to ride my horses. It's been stressful, but I will never go back. Congratulations, Lisa. Oh, that is that was the highlight of all the ones I read of all hundred of them. That was my highlight. So congratulations to you. And I'm so glad that things worked out there. Well, just wait till you're waiting for somebody to bring them home or they're driving their own car <laughs> in the store. You know, it's just like, oh, my, it is very stressful. But yeah, I would never go back either. All right, very good. We have a bunch of auditor birthdays today. Kayla Perry, Gina Moronic. Hey, Gina. She's my friend. She comes up and visits us all the time, or we we get dinner together. Spirit Brooks, Kelly Kurich. Did I say that right? Kurich. Kurich. Kurich? Kurich. Kurich. Kelly, let us know who's right on that one. I'm always right. Laura Berry and, and our friend Hope Hand, who we talked about on Monday. So happy birthday to all of you. Well, due to time constraints, we're not going to have weird news today. You can still send your weird news to jamie at horseradionetwork.com. But I wanted to give my daily Winnie to one because it was sent to me by so many people that I just had to cover this story. Because, Glenn, these people in Rio de Janeiro had a tortoise named Manuela. And Manuela's family, uh, their house was undergoing some electrical work. 30 years ago. And at some point, Manuela went missing and they were like, Oh, sad. Our turtle's gone. We don't know where our turtle is. Whatever. It's gone. So one of the family members passed away again, 30 years later, and they are up in the attic and they are like going through some of the stuff and they open a box and they're like, Oh my God, 
there's the turtle alive. What? <laughs> it is a tortoise that has been living in the attic for 30 years. What was it eating? So they say, how is this possible? Yeah, exactly. Let's find out. Uh, she she survived by eating termite larvae. And since there wasn't much water around, she probably, they said, probably got her moisture intake from the young insects as well. And if that weren't enough of a surprise, they took Manuela to the veterinarian for a checkup after they found her and found out she is a he. <laughs> so they've now <laughs> named it Manuel. <laughs> and Manuel is healthy and happy and reunited with uh, his family. No, there you go. <laughs> oh and do you had that many termites in your attic? It's, it's amazing the I'm house like, is still standing. <laughs> I don't know how 30 years of termites. I mean, probably now the house is going to fall apart because Manuela is not up there eating <laughs> the, the termites. termites. <laughs> My God, that's a story. 30 years. They said there's no word on his exact age, but his type of tortoise can live for 255 years. Oh Good God. How on earth are, do you get that as a baby pet? You're like, oh, yeah, a little turtle. Like, no, it's a tortoise is going to live for the next four generations. So nobody went in the attic for 30 years is my other question. I guess they, they said they were cleaning out the attic, cleaning out some of the family, deceased family members' belongings. They went to the attic, and in an old wooden speaker box, they discovered Manuela. No, He's Manuela. just been hiding. They were miserable to the turtle, and the turtle's been hiding for 30 years. Let me tell you a little story about, you know how I got these bunny rabbits? Yeah. The two, the two bunnies. Yeah. All right. So we have the super sweet bunny that April, the listener, gave my child without asking me. Then I have to go get another bunny. Well, bunnies are not getting along. They're not friends. So they're in, in enclosures next to each other, but they can't get to each other. Well, angry bunny, who's the attack bunny, who's the instigator for all that. He's really sweet, but he's super mean to the other bunny. So sweet bunny is in her cage and I walked his cage and I walked down and, and angry bunny is not in his cage. And the door at the bottom is open and I'm like, Oh no. Number two bunny, the angry bunny has escaped. Oh, no. What am I going to do? And so like, well, angry bunny will either come back or not. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm like, well, you can't get an APB out on a bunny and on a farm. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go about my day. And like two days later, still haven't seen bunny. And yesterday I was in the barn mucking out and here goes bunny just <laughs> hopping right through the barn aisle <laughs> i was like what <laughs> so bunny hops right through the barn aisle goes into the enclosure where it's it shares the enclosure with the chicken coops so there's like rabbit hutches in the chicken coop so they have fans and all the things you know whatever that's ridiculous so bunny I, I i'm like i'm gonna follow angry bunny and see where angry bunny goes whose name is falcon can and i guess so where I, he went to hang out with zeus uh no no falcon angry bunny went into the chicken coop and i saw him leap into a bag of chicken feed which is all <laughs> corn and i i ended up catching angry bunny because angry bunny was stuck in the bag of grain <laughs> so i wrestled angry bunny back and i put him back in his Damn it, angry bunny <laughs> i know right i was like be free <laughs> we're gonna let nature just you know what no basically he's back 
Angry Bunny is back in his enclosure. Like Zeus, he's going to torment you forever. Forever. And I don't, I, I don't, I've never opened that. There's like three doors for this like rabbit hutch, like a bottom one, a middle one, and a top one. I've never opened the bottom one. So apparently, Angry Bunny can open the bottom one. <laughs> Hell, he might have done it again already. I don't know. <laughs> All right. You want to hear the history of the English saddle? I do. Now it's time for Glenn's history segment. A semi-interesting look at random horsey things throughout the ages. In this month's Horses in History, we're talking about the history of the English saddle. A couple of months ago, I started with the history of the first saddle. That was on April 13th. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you missed it want to go back and get caught up on all of these. And then last month, on May 20th, I did the history of the Western Saddle. So today, I want to cover the history of the English Saddle. The English Saddle had its beginnings in the 1700s. During this period, the majority of the classical dressage riders in Europe rode in a high pommel and high cantle saddle, which were built on a wooden frame. It was basically the model that was also used for cattle work, for bullfighting, for mounted combat, the knights rode in that kind of saddle, and long-distance travel. In England in the 1700s, fox hunting grew in popularity. They had always hunted deer, but after the English Civil War, deer populations were down because of the overhunting for food. This required a new type of riding, as horse and rider now had to tackle fences, hedges, ditches, and banks straight on if they wished to keep up with the hounds. The old saddle was cumbersome while hunting. Its cantle would get in the way of the riders as they tried to lean back over the fence, a practice that was common until the forward seat was developed. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the high pommel created pain on the rider when they went over jumps. The resulting saddle developed for fox hunting had a very low pommel and cantle with a flat seat and no padding under the leg, therefore providing the rider with little, if any, support. The stirrup bars were protruding and placed more forward than modern saddles, which made it nearly impossible for the rider to keep his legs underneath his body. However, the usual practice to ride at that in those days was with longer stirrups and the feet pushed out front, so this wasn't a problem. The English hunting saddle is the predecessor of all English-type riding saddles. As the sports of show jumping and eventing became more popular, the saddle shape changed. Federico Caprilli was an Italian cavalry officer in the late 1800s, and he is the one who revolutionized the jumping seat. His position, what we know as the forward seat, formed the modern-day technique used by all jumping riders today. The rider uses shorter stirrups and keeps his legs under him as he rode in the two-point, with his seat bones hovering above the saddle. The shorter stirrup required a more forward flap to match the greater knee angle of the rider. The protruding stirrup bars were uncomfortable in this new position, so they were recessed. The waist of the saddle was also made narrower. Additionally, padding was put under the knee rolls for extra security. Ironically, Caprilli died in Turin, Italy in 1907 after losing consciousness while riding a horse he was testing. He fell and hit his head on a rock on the edge of the footpath. The basic English saddle design has moved into a pendulum arc from 1960s to today. During the 1960s, most saddles were crafted as a full-seat design with lots of padding for the rider. Later, during the 70s and 80s, English saddle design changed to a flatter, close-contact type of saddle. Most dressage and hunter-jumper saddles during the 70s and 80s were designed with flatter seats, had minimal knee rolls, and were light and flexible. Saddle design has come full circle with the last decade or so and changed quite a bit as technology has gotten involved with the movement back to deeper seats and more padding. 
And now you know the basic history of the English saddle. guest is Melissa Preblow Chapman, and she wrote a book called Distant Skies, An American Journey on Horseback. Uh, let's take a listen to her adventures pre-cell phone, pre-internet days, as a single girl and her dog and her horse riding across the country. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you stopping by. I'm so happy to do that. I've listened to your show and get quite a kick out of it, so I'm very happy to talk to you and talk to you about my book, Distant Skies. Well, I'll tell you what. uh, Most of the listeners know I don't read the books ahead of time. Yours was an exception because... I, I started reading it while we were on vacation, and then I couldn't put it down. So uh, so yours is one of the books I've actually read before I talked to the author, which in, in 12 years of doing this is probably the second time. So, <laughs> Well, I'm honored, I'm honored for that distinction. <laughs> I, like, I like hearing that. Well, yeah. you, you know, Melissa, we've covered, I, t- I think we talked about this, we've covered several people who have ridden across the United States on horses. And we've never talked to anybody, though, that did it pre-internet, pre-cell phone, in the good old days where if you had to talk to somebody, you had to, you know, you had to get a flag down a car going by or try and find a payphone someplace. So, you know, so for all the kids out there, yes, that day did exist in the past. (laughs) (laughs) I think that is the biggest distinction. Um, There there will always be um, horseback, you know, equestrian adventurers. I do a lot of book club talks and that type of thing, and people always go, oh, but no one could do that now. I always say, oh, you'd be surprised. (laughs) It's quite, I, I wouldn't say it's common. There's probably only a handful of people, but if you you know, are familiar with that field. And as you talk to so many horse people, you know that it's not that rare either. No, yeah, pe- people have yeah. done it. We've covered people that have done it here on the show. The one lady years ago, we talked to her every week as she was making her, her way across. Uh, that is neat, and, yeah. Yeah, some of her stories scared the crap out of us. But um, but then again, <laughs> some of the stories in your book scared the crap out of me. So there you go. So what year are we talking about? So we're so this year, 2022, is actually the 40-year anniversary because that was 1982, wow. and it makes me cringe to even say that. Me too. <laughs> I couldn't possibly be that old, but um, <laughs> I am. So um, I was in my early 20s, and it definitely was a different world. I mean, one of the questions I had recently in an interview was somebody said, what would you say the main differences between now and then? And you know what? I would just say technology. I mean, it's it's a... It's one thing, but it's huge. You know, in those 40 years, our world and how we keep in touch and our technology has just changed immensely, and therefore that has changed solo adventures. You know what I mean? Oh, de- I, think, I mean, definitely. Yeah. You, didn't, you couldn't look at the Internet to map your route all the way across the country. You know, you could do that at that time. But before we get to that, let me, let me ask you. You know, I, I listen to a hiking podcast uh, about the Appalachian Trail, and a lot of people who hike, do long-distance hikes or do long, long-term adventures like yours uh, are trying to find themselves in some way, shape, or form. They have a job they quit that they don't like, or they just got a divorce or something. Were you, you were in your early 20s. Were you looking for something like that? Were you trying to find yourself, quote-unquote? You know, I, I, I'm so glad you asked me that question because it's interesting. I found that same thing, that many people that sort of leave what I call the normal world behind, for whether it's just for a while or any extended period, frequently there is 
trouble or something they might be trying to escape or something they're trying to find. I don't mean that everyone's a mess. Maybe they're just adventurers. But it's funny because I felt like I didn't fit into that category. I was pretty normal. I had a normal, you know, happy family and friends and a social life and all that. But it was that funny age, I think. Um, it was always a dream slash fantasy because, you know, it was something I daydreamed about as a little kid. And um, I just felt the pull of it in the early 20s because, especially back then, you know, we're hitting that age, I was 23 to be specific, people were starting to either settle down or they graduated college and were in their careers that were my age, and I just, it didn't feel right for me. You know what I mean? I just felt like there's some other, I didn't realize, this is perspective of years later, but I realized I was finding my own way to sort of become an adult, you know, and um, it was this adventure that called to me. So on the surface level, there were many things about it that would call to any, almost any horseman, I think, being outdoors, you're riding all day, you know, that type of thing. But it, in the inward part of it, it, it was a journey maybe just sort of like learning who you are and, and what the world is about. It was just a different way of doing that as a young person. Now, you took your dog named Gypsy, and what type of horse did you have? Uh, Rainy Raindance is a quarter horse, or was a quarter horse, I should say. Um, he was um, an unregistered quarter horse, but if you... Um, you said you read the book. You probably saw pictures of him. Yep. He, 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 supposedly, uh, the person I got him from said he goes back to an old bloodline from called Go Man Go, and um, he was as hardy and as le- like everything that they used to promote that breed. He's the poster boy. And because I got him when I was a teenager, and in my area here in the Northeast, I'm in upstate New York. At that time, the only lessons and so on around here were that we knew of were English, and he did that. And then my friends that had their own horses, they had thoroughbred and so on, and they jumped. So I tried jumping with him. And then I tried, to, you know, going in 4-H with him. And then we did this long-distance ride. He was so versatile and so willing. I was, he was a once-in-a-lifetime horse. I always say I'll always have a horse, but I'll never have another rainy. So, and, and did you go a, English or Western when you did the trip? Uh, Western. Western. Okay. Yep. yep. And was and that my, just was that easier I'm, to carry the packs and everything else you needed? Exactly. Yeah. Like, although you may remember in the book, I I very much was drawn to, uh, like I said, my first lessons were English, but I was very much drawn to uh, the style of Western, the outdoor aspect of it. And nowadays we have like ranch and versatility and all that. That would have been something I was more interested in. English was almost like, that's what I had to do to ride. Nothing against it. It's just what I was drawn to. And I always loved being outdoors, so the trails and all that called to me, kind of. Um, but interestingly, he never developed a saddle sore. And if you, you, you've you talked to several long Oh, they've all riders, developed saddle sores. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's like the bane of any long-distance rider. And this horse did not do that, but he started to show signs at least I thought, and they were very subtle, that he was sore-backed. You know, like I'd brush him and all of a sudden he'd flinch or something. So we started playing around with different saddles, and there was a big saddle shop in the Midwest in Ohio. We were, you know, just a month or so on the road. And I ended up making the rest of the journey um, in a plantation saddle. So it's almost like neither Western nor English. Um, <laughs> well, that's what they were used thing. for, long-distance riding, so it makes sense, exactly. right? Yeah. And it was so much more comfortable for me, which was, of course, not the priority, but the the man that was selling them was an expert on saddle fit, and he said, don't think about style, don't think about 
what kind of rider you are. Think about what, how this fits this horse. And he, he loved it on Rainey. He, just his withers, his barrel, his shoulder, and, you know, he was, he was good after that. So that was actually the saddle that I did probably two-thirds of the trip in. So it's interesting because I remember you talking about the first week. How far did you plan ahead? Because you were using actual paper maps. Yes, kids, those, <laughs> they did exist back then. So, I'm glad my research was at our local library. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. Yeah, they actually had yes, books they, then. So, they had books, yeah. <laughs> so did you yeah. plan the whole trip, or were you planning like a week at a time or a day at a time? What? Well, I'll tell you, I thought I was planning the whole trip. Let's put it that way. And I think it gave me a sense of, okay, I'm making this happen. I know where I'm going. And I think it also helped my parents a little bit, too. And um, I had wrote, written a letter um, to a horse magazine that is uh, long defunct. But um, I said, I'm planning this trip, and is anyone else dead? And I got actual mail letters back from people that, you know, had a little bit of advice or offered places to stay, you know, maybe... 20 or so letters, which was nice and encouraging. But what happened was all that planning went right out the window, probably about two weeks on the road, because a map doesn't t- – I still like maps. I still like looking at maps. In fact, my two sons just did a cross-country trip by car, and I said, here, take my atlas, and they just started laughing at me because they have GPSs and phones, and, you know, they, they're like an atlas. What do you do with that? You yeah, know? I, don't, I don't even know how to read it. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't even take it. But, but anyway, what happened is it became very localized. And I'm not sure where you live, but I would get somewhere and I'd say, well, tomorrow I'm trying to go 25 miles to such and such town and I'm going on this road. And they'd say, no, 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 that road's kind of busy for a horse. Come this way and there's a trail and you'll come out, you know, by the railroad tracks and cut down (laughs) to the creek, go through so-and-so's hayfield, we'll tell them to watch for you, and then you'll come out on a two-lane road and you should be good. You know what I mean? So it it became very local and all that planning i even looked i even learned to read topographical maps if you can believe that and all of that within a couple weeks was done like never looked at that stuff again and also talk about the lessons we've all you know tried to learn about living in the moment and that surely was an effect of living in this way because i stopped looking at anything long distance and just saying today i'd like to get here you know today there's this 4-H family that said they'd you know help us out and watch for us I'm just going to get there because it, it was almost overwhelming to see it to see a whole map of the United States you know what I mean no that would have been just, depressing <laughs> at it, points. it was like I remember in the beginning I was in someone's house yeah. and they had the new TV news on in the background and they were showing the weather with a map of the United States I literally had to look away I'm like I just took three weeks and it's not even moving the dot on that map. And I still have to go this far, you know. I just stopped looking at it and just day by day, you know. So, so did, uh, so when you were on your way, you didn't also have, you know, there were no bed and breakfasts really back then. So you, you didn't have plans of where you were going to stay. That was just basically up to the universe. It was up to the universe. And frankly, I like to say this, especially for your podcast, because it's horse people that listen. It was up to the universe, and it was up to horse people. And it's kind of funny because you see horse people can be very competitive or very, excuse me, you know, my breed or my trailer's better, whatever. But when it came down to needing help and seeing a a rider and a horse, people wanted to help us. And it it was kind of an amazing thing that happened right from the beginning that even, even though I had faith in horse people, it was more than I could have imagined because they started sort of 
passing us along. And 20, 25 miles, if you're a horse person, whether you've been involved in 4-H or showing or breeding or anything, you know someone where you bought hay. You know someone 20 miles down the road that has a barn or something, and people start saying, we feel funny just sending you off, you know, not knowing what's going to happen to you. Let me call so-and-so. And it just... People on the landline. <laughs> exactly. And it was neat because it exposed me to very different um, horse people. And so I never got, like, I, I think I'm a quarter horse gal, and I love, and a mule person, too. And I, I my horse I have now and my subsequent ones, except one Appaloosa, were quarter horses, too. But um, it just exposed me to so many different types of barns and horse lifestyles. You know, people that had one muddy pen in their backyard to these beautiful homes and ranches. And, um, like, just for an example, in Pennsylvania, there was a very active uh, Tennessee walker contingent, I guess you'd say, and they all knew each other, and, like, through central Pennsylvania right into Ohio, I had people watching out for us in places, you know, that, you know, had a nice stall waiting for rainy. So that was neat. And then, you know, you see different styles and different people, and I never could have predicted that, but I think it was something I think that horse people could identify with whatever their discipline was. You know, I mean, I mean, I think everybody's had a little bit of that fantasy, like, wouldn't it be cool to just take off and, and have a good horse and just live like that for a while? And, you know, I think people related to it. So wh- what was the most challenging part of the country that you went through, for whatever reason? I I have to say mentally and emotionally challenging for me was the beginning. Because like any fantasy, it was a fantasy. And you left and out of New York. I want to clarify that. Yeah. Right, upstate yeah. New York. That's right. And it was a fantasy. I thought, oh, I'm going to ride all day and meet people. And all of a sudden, it's really, you're riding all day and you're alone. <laughs> and, you know, and you don't know where you're going to be that. Like I thought I practiced. I did I did day rides, I did camping, but then you go home, you know, you go back out with your friends that night or something, you know, so this was an emotional and mental adjustment, but terrain wise and the environment, I always say, I feel like the book is almost two different books. The first half in the Northeast and parts of the Midwest, it was like, there was always a general store, a diner or a group, you know, all of a sudden from roughly Western Kansas on, I could ride 20, 25 miles a day and not see anyone and not see a house, not see a diner or something, you know what I mean? And so I had to become tougher. The horses had to become tougher. Water became an issue. So even though I actually loved being in that part of the country, it was a different sort of um, stress to it that, like, you you got to find water. you got to make sure no matter what. And that was a big issue to me, like mm, northern New Mexico, parts of Arizona, those areas, even southern Nevada that we crossed through. Water was always a concern, which made that a difficult area. There had to have been days. That was before podcasts, so you couldn't really listen to those. Um, and i got to be honest, if I was in my head... For as long as boring a days as you were in the middle of this country, I think I would have I wouldn't have made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always say, and it sounds I guess it might sound a little corny, but it's true. I feel like especially the whole trip, but especially that western half, I said I became went very inward and also very outward, and I connected with people in a way that like you felt like instant friends because when someone did reach out or come and find you and bring you water, you just love them, you know, you know what I mean? But then there was that part of you that that's what you did all day was you had to either connect with your environment and your animals 
that that's where you were and that's how you lived and that was your choices and i and it was wonderful like the bond with this with rainy especially but all three of the animals and i should probably know that a mule joins us in case your readers are interested in reading yes. the book there's a mule in this story too and she's quite a character but um the bond was incredible like i just i just remember riding and just thinking i sort of like that trail on the right and then they would all like just gradually move over to the trail on the right you know what i mean and just it, it was the bond was very special and very important and it grew from that time alone and that time together what was the, uh, I have to ask it, and everybody else asks it, I'm sure, too, but I, the listeners would be mad if I didn't. So what was the most dangerous moment? Well, um, we had a run-in I think in I know the answer to this. <laughs> yep. We, we did have a run-in with a rattlesnake, which, being an Easterner, I did not sort of take that threat seriously. A couple, once we hit, like, um, western Texas, people were sort of warning me. And I was just kind of like, it felt like something that was just in movies, you know what I mean? So there was that. But I have to tell you, if I had to say one thing that was truly danger, more than once, it was storms. I never felt, and this is encouraging, I think, about our country, but I never, I mean, you always have that Yahoo that drives by in a car and yells something or throws a can or something, but that was actually rare. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Yep. Okay. I don't know if you heard that funny noise, but um, so there's always that. But that was minor and rare. With storms, and especially in the Midwest, the the storms were insane sometimes, and some of that was very frightening. And there's actually a story that is not in the book. And uh, like I said, I'm from the Northeast, and we have hills and tall buildings and tall trees, and lightning always seemed like something that was in the sky. And when you hit those rolling open areas. Lightning is something that's right in front of you, and we were in Indiana and hit a hit a terrible storm that I couldn't get out of, and I started realizing, gosh, I'm the highest thing. You know, they always teach you, don't be the highest thing, sitting up there on rainy trying to find a place, and we just kept pushing through, and I said, well, I'll get off, so I'm not the highest thing. But then I thought, oh, no, now Rainy's the highest thing, and I love that horse, and he's got metal shoes on, you know. So I'm like, maybe I'll get down in the ditch. So we start trying, because there's big roadside ditches because you're in this land of huge, immense cornfields and so on. So I'm trying to crouch down in the ditch and hold Rainy, pulling the reins, holding his head down. I've got Gypsy in my arms, and the ditch starts filling with water. Like, it was like a flash flood. So the ditch is filling with water, and I look and Glenn, these big, they're harmless, they say, black corn snakes oh. are floating in the water. <laughs> yeah, I don't care how harmless they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. We took our chances with the lightning, let's put it that way. <laughs> but um, that became the thing, like, when you'd start seeing that sky cloud over like that in those open areas, you just, boy, <laughs> that's like, it just even talking about it, I can just feel this feeling like of dread, you know. So, find a barn, find a building, find something. Find a barn, right. <laughs> and um, I actually just was working on an article about riding on the road, and if you have to. you know. And one of them is like, if you feel like you hear something coming that you need to get off the road, it's better to take your chances with a homeowner that says, what are you doing on my lawn or inside my barn door, than you know, some of these other options. So I did. there were a few times that there was an open barn door and we just ducked in. Well, I don't want to give too much away because the book is compelling. You have to you have to read the book. It 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 does take you back, especially for those of us that are of a certain age, because I'm about the same age you are. Um, it it takes you back to a time when you went, oh yeah, we had to look at a map. Oh yeah, they had to call from from landline to landline, party line to party line, <laughs> up the yeah. road. And in, in those days, actually, there were probably a lot of party lines in the middle of the country. Um, yes. 
and and then you would be handed off. And do you think one last question? And I want people to read the book, but one last question: Do you think it was an advantage being a very pretty twenty-three-year-old girl? Would you? Did you have an advantage there over if it had been a twenty-three-year-old scruffy guy? Um, yes and no. I okay. think. Well, thank you for that. Anyway, um, but I think that my parents at the time were like. Can't you find someone to go with you? They were willing to like pull a guy off the street and just say, you go with her, you know? <laughs> but I do think it helped me. I think that, in fact, there was one woman in Missouri, uh, she invited me in the house. Because I should say I never asked for anything except, can I put my horse in your barn or camp in your yard? And then people would then invite us if they felt like it, but it was kind of neat. But anyway, she said, I was going to let you stay out in the yard, but I saw you and you're I, I thought you, it was a little scary to just let a stranger come in, and we didn't know your real story and that whole thing. And she said, I saw you, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, this poor thing. You know, so I must have looked really vulnerable or anything. And I think being female... You're so alone, pathetic, I'll invite you in. <laughs> exactly. You couldn't hurt a flea. So I think that people... Um, you know, did not feel threatened in any way by me at all. Like, how could you? And like, like I said, I'm going to steal something from your house and make this getaway on this slow walking horse. <laughs> My all mule. the news is taking pictures of us. Like I, I was not a threat. So I think that it did help, but I do have to say, I hear stories from people all the time in different eras. And one of them recently was a young man. And you know what's, I think, encouraging, especially because this is an old story. I do hear people say, oh, you could never do that now. But as you and I discussed at the beginning, they can and they do. And you know what? They have the same kind of story. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that that um, line that we want to believe and do believe is that most people are good. And most horse people, seeing a horse person or a horse that may need something, they stop their truck or they open their barn door. And, it, and I think that is still the same, male or female, lone rider or with a group. I think that's true. Well, the book is Distant Skies, an American Journey on Horseback. I will put a link to it to the Horse and Rider books, our friends at Trafalgar Square over there. And Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. And I really did enjoy the book and uh, enjoyed, I enjoyed your adventures and I will not be doing the same thing you did. So, uh, <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I'm honored. I think it's a great show. And um, I think any horse person... I hope you'll give the book a try. It's it's kind of encouraging, and there's a lot of good horse stories in there. So thank you for the time, Glenn, and I appreciate that. This health segment is brought to you by Daily Dose Equine, non-GMO core nutrition for horses and ponies of all ages. Well, we're going to talk to Dr. Erica Latcher. Spring Hill Equine is the clinic she works at in Gainesville, Florida. And one of the listeners was asking about testing for quarter horses so this is an interview we did with her back in 2018 it was the first time she ever came on the show and uh, this is uh, about five panel testing for quarter horses and apparently we were talking about horse shopping before this so it may be referenced during the conversation but again let's take a, a little look back to our first time talking to dr latcher uh, the five panel testing is um, five diseases that quarter horses can get and quarter horse relatives. So your paints, your Appaloosas, that type of horse, um, they can get any of these five diseases genetically. So they can get them from their parents. A few of them are really, really bad. Um, and the, a couple of them you can manage, but you'd like to know they have them, especially if you're going to breed them. 
So would so you five do this? testing covers. Would you do this as part sorry. of a pre-purchase to tie a bid to our previous conversation? If you were buying a quarter horse, if you have any interest in breeding this horse, yes. Okay. So yes. if it is a mare or a stallion, absolutely. Okay. Um, and if it's a gelding, depending on what you want to do, some of these can have very significant performance um, inhibition effects. So, so tell us, what is five-panel testing um, for quarter horses? We've covered this once or twice over the years, but, but not much. That is the disease that Impressive carry, um, and it causes uh, muscle contractions at times when you wouldn't necessarily like them, almost like a seizure-type activity, but not from the brain, from the muscle. So you can imagine if you are out on the trail, if you're trying to turn a barrel, if you are even in a Western pleasure class, no matter what you're doing, all of a sudden your horse has what we call an HYPP attack. That's really bad. You can't continue doing whatever it is you're doing. Um, The other one of the five panel tests that has a really profound effect on performance is PSSM. And that is an acronym for polysaccharide storage myopathy. And that's why we use the acronym because that's a yeah. really long <laughs> mouthful. Um, but those horses get severe muscle cramping because they can't metabolize sugars correctly. And again, that's a problem, certainly if you're breeding a stallion or a mare, but even if you're looking at a gelding, again, if you're doing those performance activities and they're positive for this, they can have soreness, cramping, you know, all those performance limiting things that sometimes we like to blame on the saddle or the lameness or, you know, whatever, we reach up and touch their back and they drop to the ground because those big muscles are so sore. Mm. The good news about PSSM and HYPP to some extent is we can manage both of those diseases with diet, exercise, and some medication. So knowing that your horse has them would be very important for you in a pre-purchase situation. Are there particular breeds that are more susceptible to these to these problems? Um, in particular, the five-panel testing is for the quarter horse descendants, but we also have, and we learn more every day, um, we have PSSM can also be inherited in the draft and the warm blood type horses. There's also a little bit of evidence that it's inherited in Arabians. Um, in particular, the endurance crowd. Um, What we don't have, though, is a test for those guys. So the way genetic testing works is if there is one thing that is weird, so in like on HYPP, there's one little hitch in the get-along in the genome. So it's very easy to take some hair, test it, and say, oh, yep, there's a problem. In the other forms of PSSM that happen, It's probably multifactorial, so there's a couple of different genes involved, and we just haven't figured out a great test for all of those yet. So there can be genetic problems in lots of different horses, and we're finding out more and more how much of these issues we have are inherited. Um, You know, Arabs have a a long line of of fun things that they have inherited, like uh, severe combined immunodeficiency um, you know, there's there's definitely disorders in every breed. It's just whether or not we have a test for it or not. I'm getting a question from a listener who's asking, what is lethal white syndrome? Lethal white is, we do have a test for that one. 
Um, it is common in the paint industry in particular, and that's because it is linked to what they call a frame overo. So those are the horses that have the big white faces and they have a, uh, a lot of white on their legs. So typically stocking or higher level white on their legs and almost always all four legs. Um, oddly enough, it is most strongly associated with the quarter horsey, you know, paint version of that as opposed to more of like the, the Pinto where you'll see that in like, uh, you know, like Clydesdales could sort of be a frame of arrow but they don't seem to carry it. The lethal white that they carry on those, those paint horses is a, a disorder of the intestinal tract. And unfortunately it is lethal and it is lethal very quickly. Like the foals are born and within about 24 to 48 hours, you realize you have a problem. It turns out that the same cells that create the color on the horse also develop into the nervous system for the GI tract. So these horses are born without a nervous system for their GI tract. So everything is fine as long as they're in inside mom, they come out and the GI tract has to do its own thing and it just can't do it. Those horses are almost always completely white when they're born. They may have, you know, like the medicine hat coloration on the top of their head, maybe a little, little tiny bits of color, but for the most part, you would call them all white. Okay. Question for you. I have seen the lethal white foals born. I, I worked at a vet clinic for a long time and, and the guy was like a board certified, like theriologist, whatever. Anyway. So he bred a lot of horses. There was one particular client who every year would have a lethal white, but kept trying to breed the horse. Do you, you, at some point, this always bothered me that he continued to help with this client. Um, do you, at some point, say, hey, I can't do this anymore? Or is the client always right? Or do you, how do you counsel somebody or deal with that? That is a, a fine line that we walk every day. Um, and Hopefully. I will say that if I have a mare, um, and for, for me personally, I tend to deal with the mare side of things. I don't, I, we have some stallion work that we do, but most of our side is the mares. Um, so if I have a mare that say has a lethal light, um, I will then say to those owners, look, I think it is really important that you get your mare tested and we see, um, we actually know at that point that she's a carrier because you have to have two copies of that gene to have an affected foal. So we know she's a carrier. We just don't know if she has, you know, like what level she is. And then we'll look at the the stallion and say, we need to test a stallion. We cannot breed this mare to a stallion that carries the gene. So I, I try to have those conversations ahead of time. If it's a mare owner that I pick up, you know, after the mare has been bred um, and we're now looking at a, a foal, then unfortunately I now have to euthanize, which is always a very, very, very bad day. Um, yeah. You know, we're having that conversation then. If it is in the the breeding phase, um, you know, if we're in the early stages where we're talking with them about, you know, we're going to breed this mare, I will often say to them, you know, the, the chances of your mare being a frame of arrow and sometimes horses being horses, it's a little bit tricky to decide that that's actually what color she is. Um, we'll say the chances that she's a frame of arrow are decent and we strongly recommend you test her before we start the breeding process, because that's going to make the difference for you in terms of picking which stallion you go to. 
Uh, So that's all part of the the pre-breeding work for us if we have them there at that point in time. Gotcha. I only gotcha. Ha- we only have a couple more minutes. I wanted to ask you, because you sound like uh, we've had a lot of vets on, and uh, you sound like you really do keep up on everything going on. What what in the equine veterinary world that's coming down the pike that you've seen articles on or seen at, at, uh, at the convention, what are you most excited about that's coming down the equine veterinary I world? I thought you were going to ask, what is she most scared of? No, I'm Sorry. Well, I, I actually... No one answers <laughs> <the> both. <laughs> okay, well, I get two answers. Because one is apropos of this conversation, and that is we are probably very close to having the ability to ship semen that is not cooled. Really? So we can do it at room temperature. Yes. Yep. So that's pretty exciting. Okay, wait a minute. I got to ask how that Um, happens. How does that happen? Don't get don't get mired in the details, Glenn. Just <laughs> understand that she's excited about semen. That's the thing you need to take home. <laughs> yeah, that's this time of year for me. Um, <laughs> but it, it has the potential to make our lives much easier in terms of a you know our shipping containers can be lighter, so that can reduce shipping costs. So that's exciting. Um, also, hopefully, uh, FedEx will have less propensity for losing it because they're really good at losing those boxes. Um, So, you know, there's all kinds of exciting things that can happen for us with room temperature semen. So it's probably a a few years away, but it is on the horizon. And that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, The other thing that I have to say is, is uh, me nerding out on the other side of what I enjoy, which is performance horse medicine. Um, There are some really cool things out there about understanding how horses injure themselves so that we can look at what they do and prevent it. Um, That's a big area in the human athlete looking at if you jump this way, you're more likely to tear your ACL. So let's work on training you to jump correctly. So you don't tear your ACL. That is translating over into the equine world where we're trying to look at horses and say, all right, if the dressage horse does this in the pirouette, they're likely to get a proximal suspensory. So what can we do to train that horse to carry themselves just a little bit differently so that they're not likely to do that? Okay, and that's you out of business. pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, but, oh, I would, that, that would be fine with me on that front. I don't like seeing injured horses. Well, yeah, and it actually gives you a whole new business, doesn't it? Because somebody has to advise on, on those movements, on those things. Uh, Yes. And, and I will say that prevention is much more exciting for veterinarians. It's not as sexy, but it's more exciting um, than treating broken horses. None of us want to do that. Well, this has oh. been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. It is Spring Hill Equine Clinic in Newberry, Florida. Is that far from Ocala, by the way? We, we're about an hour north. Okay. I wasn't sure. So you're above Gainesville yet or in the Gainesville area? We are due west of Gainesville. Okay. Got it. So, well, Doctor Latcher, you can come on the show anytime. Yeah, You've been great. a blast, and you put up with us, so that was even better. <laughs> you put up with me, so no problem. <laughs> Spring Hill Equine. You can find them on Facebook as well. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. Thank you to Doctor Erica for joining us. Daily Dose Equine offers a full line of handcrafted horse feeds to maximize the health and performance of horses and ponies of all ages. Each custom feed has been developed with whole grains and non-GMO ingredients that eliminates the risk of herbicide contamination. They are also horse people. 
And that's why they have firsthand knowledge of the difference that superior nutrition can have in our equine partners. We invite you to learn more about Daily Dose Equine's origins and find a formula that's perfect for your equine partner. Go to DailyDoseEquine.com. That's DailyDoseEquine.com. Well, I wanted to let everybody know that tomorrow, Mary and Jennifer will be here doing a training episode, and then we're going to be doing some really bad ads on Friday, so get your ads in to Jennifer at HorseRadioNetwork.com to qualify for the over $400 in prizes that we have this month, thanks to HorseLovers.com. Where can they find you, Jamie? They can find me on my Facebook page, uh, all the training stuff I do, Flyover Farm, Jamie Jennings, Certified Monty Roberts Instructor. Just search her Flyover Farm, Jamie Jennings, on Facebook, and you can see all of the exciting horsey things that I get to do. And in a post-show, we're going to talk a little bit about a concert that you guys went to last night that... I had to look up because I had no idea who they were. So I'm not cool enough either. I only <laughs> learn stuff from my kid because he's way cooler than I am. <laughs> well, we're going to talk to your kid about this concert because you posted the cutest video in history of your, of your of your little guy. How old is he? Nine? Nine? Ten? He's nine. Dancing away and having a great time at this concert. It was so cute. So good job on the video. That was that was neat. That was a proud mama right there. <laughs> oh yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> so see everybody. Most people watch the concert. I watched my kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Spain Neuter Geld, everybody. 